edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is still a revolutionary act. Welcome back, everybody. I know it's been a few weeks since I put out a podcast, but a lot has happened since our last episode. Um, Many of you know that I was spending the semester up in Harvard as a Harvard resident fellow for the Kennedy School Institute of Politics. And due to the coronavirus outbreak, everything came to a halt very abruptly in March. So Harvard's campus was evacuated. I came back, drove back to my house in Northern Virginia. And it's really been just an adjustment for the last couple of weeks. And I just needed to decompress. Obviously, my fellowship getting cut short has been heartbreaking for me. I miss my students. I miss my student liaison team. We were having such an amazing time. The experience was just uh, hard to explain. It was so amazing. And it all came crashing down. So I just needed to take a little while to decompress, uh, prepare our household for hunkering down. Uh, Virginia was one of the later states to finally issue a lockdown order. It wasn't until the end of March when they did that. But my family, thankfully, we are very proactive on things and uh, I'm an asthmatic so I can't mess around with coronavirus. My mom is a really severe asthmatic and she's immunocompromised from being on heavy doses of steroids to treat her asthma. So she's in New Jersey in a hot zone, as a matter of fact. So she couldn't mess around. So we were paying attention earlier on than I think a lot of other people were um, and made those preparations. So thankfully, everyone in my family is safe and sound. Um, I miss my mom, though. Usually she's down here with me in the spring and hangs out when there's cherry blossoms. And it's such a beautiful time of year in the D.C. area. But she's staying put in New Jersey where she's safe and sound. And um, thank God for Zoom. But I'm hoping that everyone who's who's listening, that you guys are taking proper precautions, taking this seriously, and that you're safe and sound, wishing the best for your families. Um, But it has really been um, a remarkable, awful, just hard to process at times, couple of weeks. I, um, you know, just all of the death and devastation and the economic impacts of, of this coronavirus pandemic have been unprecedented. We've never really seen anything like this in this country and not since, not in a hundred years anyway, not since 1918. And it's, um, really frustrating, as you can imagine. If you're a regular listener of my podcast, uh, you know my feelings about the president, you know how I feel about his leadership or lack thereof, and his personality deficits that are dangerous. And I never thought in all of the warnings that I put forth from the time he came down the escalator until now, I never thought that all those warnings about the danger that Donald Trump posed to our democracy would include a body count. Because that's what we have now. Hundreds of thousands of Americans are infected with coronavirus. I think we're up to 30 plus thousand deaths now and rising. New York City, 10,000 deaths alone there. You know, my prayers go to New York. A couple CNN colleagues of mine from Brooke Baldwin to Chris Cuomo. Chris Cuomo um, having a tougher time handling this. He can't break his fever. It's going on over almost two weeks now, but he still continues to do his show when he can. And he's been documenting this. 
His brother, Governor Cuomo, is doing an excellent job in New York City. Shout out to all the governors in New York, New Jersey, California, up and down the East, uh, the Northeast Corridor, Michigan. I mean, the governors who have really stepped up to take leadership roles and do what it takes to protect their constituencies in lieu of the incompetence and just uh, unstable handling of this coming from Donald Trump and this administration. Despite the best efforts of our healthcare professionals and medical professionals and scientists in the government like Dr. Fauci and others, Donald Trump has just been, uh, it's just uh, many, I just can't even find the words to describe how incredibly incompetent and obnoxious um, and just intransigent he's been throughout this whole whole ordeal. For the, all the people who thought that, well, maybe he'll eventually grow into the job or he'll become more presidential. I'm telling you, if if you, how anyone can watch this display now daily because he's replaced his rallies with these daily press briefings, which just give me agita every single time I watch them. I, I don't even, I can't deal with them. I, I've I've gotten to the point now where I will occasionally turn them on. Usually now I just, I don't, but if I know I'm going to talk about them, then I will, but I get agita. And for my Italian friends out there, you know what that is. It's angst. It's that pit in your stomach where you're just like, you know, oh, anxiety. Um, it's infuriating. He takes no responsibility. He attacks the press. I mean, all of the worst personality traits that Donald Trump has that we know he has are on full display during this. His ability to bullshit his way out of things, that doesn't work this time. You can't bullshit your way out of a global pandemic. You can't bullshit your way out of the fact that you're a horrible manager when you have a global pandemic to manage. He's exposed in the worst possible way. And people's lives have been put at risk unnecessarily because of it. So over the last couple of weeks, it's been a lot. It's just been a lot. It really has. And but don't worry, I haven't lost faith. Just even me, you know, we need to recharge. And I have my batteries are fully recharged now. And we're back in the game. Honestly, speaking is back. Uh, I'm working on a YouTube channel coming soon. So stay tuned. Um, That's something that being in in a lockdown state, it's, it kind of forces you to have to be more creative and, and finish the projects you were procrastinating on before. So that's one of them. People have been asking me for a YouTube, YouTube channel for a while. So um, it's in the works, folks. It's in the works. Um, and my husband's helping me with it, which is cool. So we get to work on it together. What else has been going on? Um, yeah, so binge watching lots of stuff on Netflix, like everybody else. I got sucked into the Tiger King thing, which was just, I don't even know how to describe that. That was um, crazy. But the thing about Tiger King is um, back in 2013, I actually visited the Myrtle Beach Safari, which Doc Antle runs. And he is featured in the Tiger King documentary series. Uh, and I, I, I had no idea that this whole industry was as untoward as it is and how illegal all this stuff is and just oh, the uglier side of it. I had no idea. I took my mom 
for her birthday in 2013. And um, we had a wonderful time and we had no idea about any kind of animal mistreatment or anything that may have been going on there or that's alleged. We just didn't know. Or all the weird stuff with Doc Ansel and the women. Uh, for those of you who have watched it, for those of you who haven't, it's it's a wild ride and I suggest you watch it. It's certainly entertaining. Um, but I feel awful because it was such a wonderful experience for us with the baby tigers and lions and and uh, we just didn't know about all the other crazy negative side of it. So that gave me, uh, you know, that made me feel a little awful about stuff while I was watching Tiger King. But, you know, uh, you live and learn. You live and learn. So we did watch that like everybody else. Also, Ozark. OK, I am late to the game. I had no idea that Ozark was so fantastic. I mean, I saw the advertisements for it and you know, I've been busy the last couple of years. And so I hadn't really gotten into any new series like that. I had no idea that Jason Bateman, Laura Linney, Julie Garner, I think is the person, the woman who plays Ruth, Ruth, what fantastic performances. It's so well written. The cinematography is outstanding. The storyline, the plot. I will go out on a limb and say that Ozark is probably the best drama since The Wire. I said it. Some people may argue with me. You can send me some some of your thoughts on my Instagram or on Twitter at the honestly Tara at I'm sorry, honestly underscore Tara or at Tara Set Mayor on Instagram. But I just think it's a, uh, I'm a huge fan. I think it's an outstanding program and I'm so glad that it's won the awards and nominations and everything that it's gotten, all the accolades, it's well-deserved. I'm not going to give anything away, but if you are not into Ozark, you're missing, you're missing out. Fantastic. The downside now, I mean, we binge watched three seasons in oh, four and a half days. So that's 10 episodes per season. That's what I started to do when I couldn't take the freaking Trump pressers anymore. We'd start binge watching Ozark at like six o'clock and then I take a break for Jeopardy at 730 and then back to (laughs) back to Ozark. Yes, my husband and I watch Jeopardy daily when we can like 65, 70 year old married couples. It's funny. But anyway, so that's what I've been doing. We're looking for something new to watch. We watched Avenue 5 by um, Armando Iannucci. He is the creator of Veep, also of my favorite British comedy, In the Thick of It, and a really good movie called In the Loop. Armando Iannucci is a genius and hysterical. His writing, his banter, the acting that goes into it, phenomenal. Avenue 5 is pretty good. Not as good as Veep, but entertaining nonetheless. Hugh Laurie, he used to play um, House, and he was also in Veep does a magnificent job. So that's some of the stuff that I've been watching. We're about to start binge watching something else. Oh, one more thing I want to mention. I watched the Hillary documentary on Hulu. It's four parts and very, very well done. Um, And I'm not a fan of Hillary Clinton. I'll tell you what, I didn't vote for her. I can't stand the Clintons. But that documentary showed a different side of her. And I just have, um, I don't want to say that she made, she's more likable after it, but it certainly gave me some perspective about her as a person. And she's complicated. Still not a big fan of hers, but that documentary was interesting. It, it, I felt myself kind of just putting things into different perspective. I'll tell you right now, I wish she were president right now. Um, 
one thing, lover or hater, she certainly is smart and she wouldn't be acting out the way Donald Trump is uh, during this crisis. That's for sure. Um, So that's that. So you guys can tweet at me or send me stuff on social and let me know what you're watching, what you're doing to stay sane during this lockdown. I've been doing a lot of cooking too. My husband's very happy about that. I get some good recipes from my mom and I put her on FaceTime and we like, she talks me through them. So it's awesome. (laughs) That's cool. Um, I want to give, I just want to just give a shout out to the first responders, our healthcare workers, all, all the people on the front lines, man, our store clerks, delivery folks, people who are essential workers who are still out there keeping the food supply going. And my heart just breaks for all the small business owners and restaurants and people who've lost their jobs. I mean, we are at 22 million unemployed. This is unfathomable. That's more people than the Great Depression. I think it was 16 million during the Great Depression. Um, Less, you know, smaller um, population, but still. It's... We're, we're in for some tough times, so it's important that we we stay together as a country. And um, I just, you know, just keep praying and supporting your fellow neighbors. And for the love of God, stay home. If you don't have to be out and about, don't be. There's no way we're going to get through this without that. So that's what I wanted to say about that. Um, who is on the, the podcast this week? It's actually Ron Brownstein is my guest. Ron is a senior political analyst for CNN, and he writes for The Atlantic. Uh, he has two really good articles out right now on issues that I know people are concerned about. A lot of people are worried about what the hell is going to happen to the election, right? And Ron uh, wrote a really good piece about mail-in balloting because that's all the buzz. Trump hates it. He's running around saying that, uh, you know, the elections are going to be compromised and there's fraud and all this crap about mail-in balloting to discourage it. But that's actually bullshit, as no surprise. And Ron Brownstein wrote a really good piece about mail-in balloting and to kind of give people some hope and some relief that um, that is a solid option, especially in states where it's going to be close and that matter, the six states that matter most. So I'm bringing Ron on to talk about that in more depth and explain it. And also to talk about kind of the political implications of coronavirus and the political divide between red and blue states and how that may impact the election in 2020. So uh, stay tuned for Ron. Um, a couple things I just want to I want to talk about, you know, t- things that bug me about Trump. I mean, so many Trump and Fox News and so many of these people who for weeks and weeks did not take coronavirus seriously. And I unfriended a bunch of people on Facebook over this. I It, it has affected friendships, longtime friendships of people who were very close to me. Uh, I, I have no patience now. I mean, I had no patience before, but I really have no patience for people who are just irresponsible with science and health. We're literally talking about life and death here. And knowing how vulnerable I am and my mom is, and we've had some not direct friends, but like friends, parents or relatives, people they know who have died, who have succumbed to COVID-19. I just have no tolerance for people who are questioning scientists and doctors and who think that Donald Trump's word is more valuable and more accurate than doctors and scientists. It's, It's craziness. And there's a couple, two things I want to point out to people who may be on the fence or don't really realize how full of shit Donald Trump has been about his response. 
I want to go through the timeline just briefly, the timeline to remind folks of how Donald Trump responded to this. When he goes out there during these rallies, which I'm glad to see that CNN and MSNBC have decided to cut away at certain points and haven't covered it fully like before, when they realized that they were not informative for the American people anymore, that they were becoming just these stream of consciousness rants by a raving madman. Um, inaccurate, full of lies, full of bullshit that they were like, okay, this is no longer, we're not going to be, we're not going to make the same mistakes we made in 2016 by giving Trump all this free ad time, free air time. And that was part of the problem that contributed to his uh, win, I believe, in 2016. And I'm glad to see that cable news networks, you know, we're not talking about Fox because they're a state-run propaganda machine at this point. But CNN and MSNBC are making a good faith effort to not make the same mistake twice. Um, you know, there's the other flip side of it is that the American people should see how what a raving lunatic Trump is. Um, I don't know. It's it's a lot. <laughs> but Trump continues to repeat things that are just flat out not true. Like, you know, he may he took this big step before anybody else to ban travel from China. No, he didn't. And no, he did not actually ban all travel from China. Okay, that is a lie. Donald Trump did not decide to ban, quote, travel from China until February 2nd. That's a full month after the first cases started to be reported out of China. That's number one. Number two, the United States was not the first country to do this. Italy and Australia were doing it before we did, by days. Number three, it was not a full travel ban. There were 11 exemptions from this, quote, travel ban that Trump seems to pride himself on. 11, including it exempted people from traveling from Hong Kong, from Taiwan, from Macau. It also exempted American citizens, families of American citizens, permanent, legal permanent residents. And that's thousands and thousands of people who were still able to come to this country from China after this alleged ban. It was announced on January 31st, not not imposed until February 2nd. And then they were screening people and, and the screening process was all screwed up. I mean, the federal government's response overall has been a mess. It's been all over the place, mainly because of, of Trump's uh, decision not to take this seriously early enough. And the alarm bells were being sounded early. They were going off. People were sounding the alarm. The intelligence community sounded the alarm in mid-January. And in January, the Health and Human Services Secretary, Alex Azar, was like, um, yeah, we're, we got a problem here. Trump didn't want to hear it. The New York Times did an excellent story last week, uh, broke on, on Easter Sunday, with a TikTok about just how uh, stubborn Trump was with this obstinate, a word my grandmother used to use all the time, how obstinate he was about accepting the actual threat this posed. It was significant. The entire month of February was basically wasted. He would, he didn't want to hear it. He was still out there golfing. He had half a dozen rallies in February and March. He had six rallies in January. He was golfing at Mar-a-Lago 
Remember during Super Bowl weekend, he had a Super Bowl party. It took then where he finally got a formal briefing for anyone to listen. Super Bowl weekend. That was February 2nd. So we knew and, and intelligence reports showed that the intelligence community knew weeks before that. And they were trying to give warning as early as December. But January, early January, when it first went public, January 3rd, what was President Trump doing? Oh, he was bombing Iranian, uh, uh, Iranian uh, military guys, uh, Soleimani, right? He bombed him. And it was all about, you know, what that on January 3rd. That was the same day he got the first formal notification that there was a possible pandemic coming out of China. And then all through January, he was like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's under control. I mean, January 22nd, we have it totally under control. It's one person coming in from China. We have it under control. It's going to be just fine. January 22nd, January 24th, it will all work out well. February 2nd, we pretty much shut it down coming in from China. Yeah, pretty much. That's that's accurate because they didn't shut it all the way down. It was only kind of sort of with 11 exemptions, remember. And by the way, the New York Times calculated that 430,000 people came in from China from January 1st up until the, um, the, the quote, ban. And that 40,000 people have come in in the two months since the ban. That's a whole hell of a lot of people. So that's a lot of folks that, that Trump just conveniently leaves out when he talks about how he, you know, pats himself on the back about what a wonderful job he did. February 19th. I think it's going to work out fine. I think we, when we get into April and the warmer weather, that has a very negative effect on that and that type of virus. So let's see what happens. But I think it's going to work out fine. Really? February 24th. The coronavirus is very much under control in the U.S. Stock market's starting to look very good to me. That was what? Right before the stock market plummeted and lost the, in the worst losses since the Great Depression. February 26th. Well, because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. When you have 15 people and 15 within a couple days is going to be down to close to zero. That's a pretty good job we've done. That was February 26th. Yeah, we're over 300,000 cases now. What a great job. Close to zero? I don't think so. February 28th. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. You can't make this shit up, folks. You just can't make this up with this guy. He continued on in that vein for weeks. It wasn't until March 13th that he finally declared a national emergency. And that was very reluctantly. And that was only because the stock market was plummeting and he saw his reelection campaign going away. All right. He saw his reelection prospects vanishing before his eyes and he reluctantly did it. And, you know, only when people started to die in larger numbers did he start to kind of sort of take it seriously. But then he refused to take any responsibility for it. The whole idea of the ventilators and governors and the states have to fend for themselves. I mean, as early as let me check here. I have the notes. It was as early as January, where is it? January, mid-January, the Assistant Homeland, uh, HHS Secretary, Health and Human Services Secretary for Preparedness and Response instructed subordinates to make contingency plans to implement the Defense Production Act. That was mid-January, right? This Defense Production Act, which we heard a lot about to, to force companies into making essential things like ventilators, that wasn't invoked fully until a month and a half later, not almost two months after that, 
that's what caught help. That's what contributed to the shortage in, in supplies and masks and gloves and ventilators because Trump dilly dallied around and didn't implement it. They were making plans, the professionals, back in mid-January. Are you kidding? As early as January 18th, like I said, the HHS secretary, Azar, was trying to talk to Trump for two weeks. Finally got his attention the weekend at Mar-a-Lago. And before Azar began talking about the virus, Trump interjected and asked him about federal crackdowns on vaping. That's where his his mind was in January. Yeah, what about vaping? He wasn't taking this seriously early on. The Washington Post has a really good TikTok on this by Aaron Blake. Blake. Two months in the dark, the increasingly damning timeline of Trump's coronavirus response. I encourage everyone to check it out. Aaron Blake does great work, by the way. The Fix is his column in the Washington Post. And also everyone should really read the... New York Times TikTok on this too. It's in depth. Trump had a hissy fit at the coronavirus briefing the day, the next day after Easter, unhinged in ways we hadn't seen in a long time. They played a propaganda video from at, on the White House lawn, which is totally illegal. It's against the Hatch Act. You're not supposed to do any campaigning on government time. And it was misleading, of course. He went off for two hours about this and that and uh, attacked journalists and, you know, he was completely unhinged, completely unhinged because he's getting exposed again. And the the people who hold him accountable, people in the media, he tries to continue to undermine them because they're exposing him. And more and more people are talking about how he screwed this up, totally screwed it up and claims he doesn't take responsibility. But yet he wants to tell governors when they can open, when they can't. Donald Trump does not have the authority to dictate what states do. Hear me. For the people in the back, I will repeat it. Donald Trump does not have the authority, despite his claim of total authority. He does not. Governors control what happens in their states. So don't let Donald Trump try to bullshit you into believing that. We have a president, not a king. Our founding fathers were very, very sensitive to that when they were creating the Constitution, which is why you have separation of powers, which is why the Congress has more control and more power than the president does when it comes to domestic policy. Power of the purse, all of those things. The 10th Amendment, states' rights, these things matter. They matter. But this guy flouts this and these Republicans who used to be the constitutional Republicans. Remember those people? The Ted Cruz's, the Senator Mike Lee's. Where are they? Where are they? Silent on this. Donald Trump made several unconstitutional threats and claims this week. And those people are silent. These are the same ones who held filibusters and rallies and and their heads exploded when Barack Obama made the comment that he's got a pen in the phone and that he would circumvent Congress and do executive actions on things like immigration. This is 10 times worse what Donald Trump is trying to do. 10 times worse. Silence. I don't have time for any of these freaking hypocrites. None of them. Shame on all of them. And we have got to continue to shame these Republicans who enable this guy. Because now we're talking about life and death. And we're talking about possibly affecting our elections, right? 
And that's where Ron Brownstein comes in. And I think this is going to be a great and informative conversation for folks. So I'm going to go ahead now and bring Ron Brownstein in to talk about how is this debacle that we're in, this lack of leadership that coming from the president and his threats against governors and everything else, how does that impact our, our, our elections? So next up, CNN political analyst and political analyst and writer for The Atlantic, Ron Brownstein. Well, I'm really pleased to bring on Ron Brownstein as my guest for the relaunch of the Honestly Speaking podcast because we've been on hiatus for a little while, as I had previously explained. And not only is Ron a an unbelievable political analyst. He's my CNN colleague. He's a CNN senior political analyst, and he's the senior editor of The Atlantic. And Ron recently wrote a couple of pieces that I want to talk about more in depth in depth today because I think it's relevant to um, a lot of what people are thinking and the trepidation people have in this new era of the coronavirus and how it's going to impact our politics moving forward. So, Ron Brownstein, thank you so much for taking the time to come and join me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I didn't know I was the relaunch guest. This is very exciting. <laughs> you are. I took a little bit of a hiatus um, after the mass evac from Harvard. Uh, I took a couple weeks to kind of reassess and decompress. And too many people were saying, you've got to bring the podcast back soon. I said, all right, all right. So this week it is back and you are my guest and I'm thrilled oh, to have great. you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so, Ron, um, you know, you have been a student of politics and following these things for many years and <laughs> your commentary on um, mail-in and balloting was really the impetus for why I wanted to bring you on this week because so many Americans are really um, concerned about how this is going to impact the election in November. <laughs> Trump is such a wild card. He has said so many irresponsible things. And the American people, the integrity of our election system has already been tampered with because of Russia and all of that. But now we have this global pandemic happening. And I just thought I just know the American people don't know what to think. But mm. you have a glimmer of hope about mail and yes. balloting that I think is important for people to hear. So you wrote a piece in The Atlantic last week called The Most Important 2020 States Already Have Vote by Mail. And you said that Donald Trump has already lost his newly declared war against voting by mail. How so? Well, uh, first of all, again, thanks for having me. Uh, the key here is that in the states that are most likely to decide the election, anybody who wants to vote by mail already has a legal right to vote by mail for any reason. They don't need to provide a reason. Uh, to understand the way we kind of use vote by mail in the US, it's, it's probably helpful to think about it in three tiers. Right now, there are five states and some counties in California that are complete vote by mail. They send everyone a ballot. Um, and that's Colorado, Washington, uh, Oregon, uh, Hawaii for the first time in 2020 and Utah. So, and California does it by county, but they are likely to do it for the whole state in 2020. So you sit there at home, you get a ballot and you return the ballot, uh, either by mail or by dropping it off. Uh, and that's kind of this small group, which Trump is raising as kind of his boogeyman. We don't want everybody to be mailed a ballot. The largest group of states though, Tara, uh, Tara is that are the 29 states that have absentee or vote by mail for any reason, without cause. Anybody who wants a ballot can get one. And 
And there are issues in the details of implementation of that. And there are logistical questions uh, about whether the states are going to be able to administer the increased demand on that that we can talk about. But the fact is, is that if you look at the states that are going to decide this election in all likelihood, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and the Rust Belt, North Carolina, Arizona and Florida across the Sun Belt, Ohio, Iowa, Maine, even Georgia, all of them. Now, anyone who wants a ballot can get a ballot. Um, and then you have the last group of states where this is going to be the toughest issue, the 16 states that require cause to get a mail ballot. And that includes Texas, where the attorney general made clear yesterday after uh, after losing a court decision that they are going to go all the way through the legal system to fight the idea that people can use coronavirus uh, fear of contracting it as a, as a reason to get a ballot. In those states, Yes, it's going to be a contentious fight. But in the states that are going to pick the president, the, the legal structure is there for a big increase in the use of mail balloting. Well, that's interesting that Texas is uh, fighting that. And, um, you know, because the trends in Texas are interesting for a number mm-hmm. of reasons. And we're going to get to that in the second part of this conversation, talking a little bit more about the way that the political divide that that coronavirus is uh, shaping up to be uh, to have and where what role Texas plays in this a little bit because of the, of mm-hmm. the demographics and voting trends there that Republicans should be a little concerned about. Um, but what you so you started to say that, OK, there are these three ways that you can mail in ballot, also known as absentee balloting for, for people. Um, I when I lived in Florida, I voted by absentee ballot. When I went to college at George Washington University 20 years ago, I voted by absentee mm-hmm. ballot in New Jersey. I now live in northern Virginia, which is one of the most recent states to go to a no excuse absentee balloting or, no, you know, mail in ballot. Right. right? Um, the most recent, the 29th. Yes. Thank God, because um, that's a pain in the ass on having that option. But uh <laughs> There are some, what are some of the more logistical problems with this? Like, what should people be paying attention to? Because I'm part of um, a group, a task force with Stand Up Republic, uh, with Evan McMullen and Mindy Finn. Mm -hmm. We have a task force of of lots of uh, principled conservatives who are not pro-Trump that are really paying attention to the mail-in balloting option because we have to get on this now. We can't wait to the last minute. And, you know, we've kind of flushed out a couple of states where we're going to see these problems mostly with Republican governors, but give some examples of some of the things that are, would prohibit people from being able to have more access to mail-in balloting. I think there there, there there are three buckets. There's there are implementation issues, there are logistical issues, and there's kind of party focus and organization issues. On the logistical issues, there are several. Some states uh, require you uh, make it very difficult to request the ballot, um, and the question will be whether, given this outbreak, states can be pressured into allowing people to apply online. I think that is a you know from the safety of their home, rather than having to go through various steps to. To, to get the ballot. Uh, the second big question, and it varies by state, is whether the postage is paid for the return ballot. Uh, that is a uh, that is a, uh, a big issue. Uh, the next question, and I think even a bigger one, is that some states still require witnesses to your signature. <laughs> and North Carolina and Wisconsin are among them. And again, in a period of social distancing, and we don't know what the fall is going to look like, is that a um, is that a reasonable requirement? Could state courts strike that down as unreasonable in this context? My understanding, having read the decision, is that the federal court that ruled in Wisconsin that originally allowed for you know more days to turn in your ballot uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court overturned them, they struck down the witness requirement, uh, and and the Supreme Court decision, the U.S. Supreme Court decision, was silent on it. So it is possible 
possible that uh, the witness uh, requirements could be struck down. And then, of course, probably the biggest issue of all in implementation uh, is the standards by which signatures are going to be judged and whether they are invalidated. I mean, there's there's research by Daniel Smith, who's a political scientist at the University of Florida, kind of path-breaking research, that young people and minorities are more likely to have their ballots rejected for not matching signatures than older people uh, and white voters. So that's the first group. Second group is, you know, we're going to see a vast increase in the number of people voting by mail in these states under any circumstance. Wisconsin was 5% in 2016 and 6% in 2018. What was it in this? It was probably 75% of the total Mm -hmm. ballots Mm -hmm. came in by mail. Are states going to have the person power and just the printing and the, you know, just to handle this, to get the ballots out in a timely fashion and to uh, assess them when they come back in? And then I'd say in my final bucket of concerns would be even though you have no excuse absentee balloting in many of these states, it's not part of the tradition, right? Wisconsin, North Carolina, uh, even Pennsylvania, where they went to the no excuse this time, it's less than 5% of the voters have cast ballots so uh, by mail. So are the parties equipped, and, and it is going to have to be the parties, I think, primarily, to kind of organize their supporters around this option, and or will the states take an intermediate step, not necessarily mailing everyone a ballot, which is be fought tooth and nail by Republicans. But could you do what uh, Mike DeWine has done in Ohio for the for the primary and mail everybody a reminder that, hey, if you want an absentee ballot, here's how to apply for it. Well, the, the key common denominator here is uh, in mail-in balloting is how you get the ballots to the voter and how the voter gets them back. And that would be by the U.S. Postal Service. Mm. Do you think, I mean, I've had the theory that's the, the bee in the bonnet for the president of the United States over the Postal Service and his refusal to um, infuse the Postal Service with much needed money because they right now they're claiming they'll run out of money by September and he's been refusing to add, to, to fund them. Um, um, as even in the in the stimulus bill where they were funding everything else, he said, no, if there's funding for the post office, I won't sign it. So they had to Congress had to remove it, which is insane to me. Do you I, I think personally that Trump doesn't want the post office functioning because he hates mail in balloting. He's got this twisted idea that it's it's rife with fraud, which it's not. And if you cripple the post office, then you can't have a successful mail in balloting because that's a federal function. Yeah. Well, am I, you know, am I crazy for this? Well, no, I think, look, we don't know what's in his head on this. Well, this people, is true. <laughs> people, people have attributed it also to his, you know, hatred of Jeff Bezos right. and Amazon. Right. Um, but I think whatever Trump is thinking, I mean, Nancy Pelosi was not born last night. And it is inconceivable to me that Republicans will get anything of what they want in terms of further, uh, you know, stimulus and bailouts for favorite industries without significant uh, support for the post office and also significant support for the states to, to augment their capacity to deal with what is going to be, under any circumstance, vastly more people voting by mail. So I think Trump may, in fact, have those, but you know, uh, goals or, or inclinations. But can you imagine a world in which the Democrats let them get anything they want without oh, protecting the post right. office and strengthening vote by mail in the states? No, absolutely not. The the problem is that you and I, as as people who study politics and understand it, um, the timing of all of that could be problematic because if it's thrown mm. into chaos and it's dragged out, then it you know it leaves a certain amount of um, unpredictability for states. 
and people don't know what to do, the yeah. uncertainty of it, and then you, you just run out of time to effectively execute mail-in balloting options if the post office is, you know, hanging on it by a string and they don't yes. fund it until September. You know what I mean? Like, it could be, it could just really be chaotic, but you're right. I don't think it's going to go that way. Um, you know, there's also plenty of Republicans who have constituents who are employed by the post office. You know, there's a lot of people who work for the post office and ancillary businesses that require that, that live in Trump country. So right. uh, it's going to uh, be uh, interesting Trump to see country, how that plays out. Yeah, yeah, FedEx is not, I'm guessing FedEx is not as prevalent in Trump country, right? right. I mean, small town America really does rely on the post office. But, but to your point about the, the, the potential for chaos, let, let me throw out a different thought on that, which is that, you know, there are some uh, some advocates of vote by mail who are saying that Democratic governors or Democratic secretaries of state where there are where they exist should uh, use emergency power and public health power, basically, to take the next step and move from the middle category of no excuse vote by mail into the top category, uh, you know, the Colorado, Washington, Oregon category of sending everybody a ballot. And, you know, uh, I, there are states that are talking about that. Uh, I think Illinois, for example, the governor is talking about that. I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense for Democrats because mm-hmm. you, you can be sure that if they do that, they're instantly going to court in the state courts. And whatever the state courts rule, there's going to be another set of litigation that's going to end with John Roberts and four other Republican appointed justices on the Supreme Court. And you could have months of struggle over whether you're going to mail everyone a ballot, lose in the end and lose the opportunity to use that intermediate time to just remind people uh, through a variety of means, including mailing to them potentially, uh, that you know you can get a ballot if you want one. Now I've been told that there, you know, that there are some Republicans, for example, in Arizona, who think that could be the compromise step. You know, mailing everybody a ballot is certainly a bridge too far for many Republicans, but mailing everyone a reminder, hey, you can get a ballot if you want one, and here's how you do it. Maybe that will be acceptable in some states, not Wisconsin, probably, but right. In, right. But, 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 you know, there are a few places where I, I, you know, it'd be interesting to see about Florida, you know, because don't forget, you know, you know, this as well as I is that in many of these states, Republicans have focused more on ab- mail balloting and Democrats have focused more on early balloting souls to the polls and African yes. churches the Sunday before the election. Uh, you know, it's not like the Republicans in Florida are afraid of a lot of people voting by mail. I mean, they 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 have you know, specialized and thrived at this literally for decades. I'm glad you brought that up because I was about to. It was perfect, a perfect transition mm. uh, about that. Uh, I think uh, some arguments that um, I always I refer oftentimes on the podcast to my Facebook arguments um, with, on my page and on my mom's page. My mom is a <laughs> Facebook warrior and she has some pro-Trump people on her Facebook page that I encourage her to get rid of often because they're just irrational and obnoxious. But she's finds it fun to spar with them. And one of the one of the things this week, of course, has been the Trump talking point about, oh, you know, it's going to be fraudulent and the the Democrats will be advantaged by mail and balloting and this and that. And I was like, not not so fast. Um, And this was partially I didn't really realize this until I read your piece about the fact that in places like Florida, Republicans have thrived off of very robust absentee balloting operations. I mean, I worked on a campaign in a congressional campaign in Florida many years ago, and absentee balloting has always been an important part of the campaign apparatus. I just didn't really put it 
you know, I never put two and two together about whether we were more advantaged with that versus Democrats. It just was like a part of the Republican playbook. You always focused on absentee balloting. And that was because of the older people who vote more often and it's easier for them for absentee balloting. That's really who it was targeted, especially in in places like Florida. But then in your piece, you also reference a, a recent study um, where they they said that the absentee, the, the souls for the poll, souls of the polls example that you just mentioned. I don't know a lot of people outside of black Democratic circles are aware of what that is, but you can explain what that is and why sure. that's important and why and you mentioned this in your piece. Some Democrats, they don't want the all mail in balloting because of the importance of the oper- the get out the vote ground operations they have of getting people to the polls. They've been focusing on that for so many years that they are like, yeah, we don't really want all that all mail and balloting thing because then we have to change our apparatus. Right. Well, well a couple, couple a lot, lot, lot to unpack there. First, no question, Republicans in a lot of places have um, had the advantage in mail balloting, in part because the, the voters who have been most likely to use it are older white voters. And older white voters over the last 25 years have drifted toward the Republican Party. 60% of Donald Trump's votes in 2016 came from white people over 45. Right. And they were only about 43, 45% of the total electorate. So uh, if you look at Arizona, for example, uh, where you can be a permanent absentee, you can get, get on a list, a permanent absentee. You can get a ballot every election. Three quarters of all the votes, roughly, in 2016 were cast abs- uh, by mail in Arizona. There are more Republicans than Democrats on the permanent list. And in mm-hmm. fact, you know, one of the reasons people said to me why the state hasn't become competitive faster is because Democrats have struggled to get uh, Latinos to sign up in the numbers they need uh, on the permanent absentee lists. Uh, and, you know, and uh, there's a similar, I think, even more powerful dynamic in the African-American community. I mean, it, there are... Uh, you know, it's, it, there are a lot of Democrats who believe that African-American voters are a little more leery of voting by mail, a little more uncertain about what's going to happen to their ballot when it leaves their hands. Now, by the way, a lot of people who vote by mail actually turn it in in a, uh, you know, some sort of repository that is set up, some sort of early vote center. I believe I was told a majority of all the mail ballots are actually physically handed in. Um, but the, you know, the, the the Democrat, I mean, although there have been these calls for complete vote by mail, Tom Perez did a, uh, uh, the chair of the DNC did a, um, uh, a press call earlier this week, and he made clear he was not asking for that. He said Democrats want people to have the options, uh, choices on how to vote, voting on election day, voting early and no excuse absentee balloting. Kamala Harris has introduced a bill, no excuse absentee balloting. Um, uh, the souls to the polls has been a really important part of Democratic organizing. Mm-hmm. It's basically the, been the Sunday before the election. Uh, you try to kind of, uh, you know, almost have a parade of voters from African-American churches directly into the early voting uh, facilities that are available. And I do not think there are Democrats. I, I know. I mean, I talked to the, the party voter security person in North Carolina, they don't want to give that up. I mean, you know, if you if you basically say we're going to severely cut back early voting and only send everybody a ballot, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of pushback on that from Democrats and particularly in the African-American community. That was an interesting aspect of your piece that 
I never really thought about that Democrats would be a, a bit reticent of the whole mail-in balloting, all full mail-in balloting option uh, that I hadn't considered before. So I found that to be a really valuable aspect of it. And something else you mentioned in your piece was the fact that in some places, election officials have the ability to see a person's name and yeah. political affiliation yeah. when they're reviewing these ballots. And hmm, that could possibly influence the rejection rate. <laughs> Oh my God! I, you know, I was in I was in Tallahassee for forty days and you know, biblical forty days and nights. <laughs> I in, remember <laughs> in two thousand, and the famous image of the guy looking through the microscope. You know, yes, a, a, the hanging chads. The, the hanging chads. You know, somebody on Twitter put a picture of uh, put a mask on him. You know, in the, in the same, <laughs> with the magnifying glass, and we could be doing that. Look, there is going. This is going to be an enormously contentious issue, and there's going to be a lot of litigation. Uh, uh, you know, the the standards by which absentee ballots are accepted or rejected is one of those things in our election system that has probably got, you know, has never been made as rigorous as it needs to be. Uh, you know, if you recall, the Supreme Court stopped the recount in 2000 in Florida uh, because they said there were there, there was not possible to establish common standards in ca- in every county. Yeah, I remember uh, by that same logic, uh, you could imagine a tremendous amount of litigation uh, around which ballots are accepted and which are rejected, you know, obviously depending on how close the election is and whether. But even even without that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, on election night in 2018, uh, Kristen Cinema was losing in Arizona to Martha McSally. And mm-hmm. then as they, as they counted absentee ballots in Maricopa County, over and and Tucson uh, primarily over the next several weeks she pulled away she won pretty comfortably by like you know I forget what it was like four or five points she won like, like fifty thousand votes mm-hmm, four yeah. votes four four percentage points yeah four percentage points yep. okay so imagine a scenario uh, not hard to imagine this scenario at all uh, I, Trump is basically done in Michigan I think after you know standing at the White House podium and saying don't return the calls of the governor during the middle of a pandemic because I'm mad at her oh. uh, so Biden wins Michigan Biden. The Scranton boy pulls out Pennsylvania, but Wisconsin is a bridge too far. He can't get over the top in Wisconsin. It's just a little too rural, a little too non-college white, a little too evangelical, all those things. And uh, he has won all the Clinton states. He's brought back Michigan and Pennsylvania. He is just short of 270 on election night. They are tied or Trump is even ahead in Arizona. And as they count the mail-in ballots every day, the lead disappears. What do you think that's going to look like from the White House and on Fox? Just thinking about that scenario gives me agita. The yeah. Italian in me, you know, the, the I've, I've had a lot of agita lately. And envisioning a scenario like that scares the bejesus out of me because yeah. we, we're not dealing with a sane person who is trustworthy, who it respects the process and institutions and the utter chaos that would throw this country into would make yeah. 2000s election look like Disney World. Now, you you might have an opinion on this from your own background, which is, I mean, it is, it seems to me that with polling, national polling, showing surprising uh, vulnerability for Trump with older voters, it's not inconceivable that Biden wins Florida, even though it is tilted away from the Democrats pretty clearly since 2012. Um, And if he did win Florida, obviously, you know, we wouldn't have any of these uh, kind of uh, situations. But, uh, you know, if, if Trump holds Florida and North Carolina and Biden 
uh, and Wisconsin, and Biden takes the you know um, Pennsylvania and Michigan, which seem to me the two Trump states that are the loosest, you know, in his coalition. You could end up in a situation where either in Florida or Arizona or both, you're mm-hmm. counting ballots long after election day, and the you know the entire conservative media ecosystem is just you know fanning the flames of they're stealing the election every day in Maricopa. I mean, it's just not hard to envision that. You know, we'll see if we get there. Obviously, the state supreme court race in Wisconsin this week suggested that there is continued erosion for the Republicans in the big suburban areas there, and maybe Biden. Uh, brings that back uh, and none of this ever happens. But it's just something to keep filed away as a possibility. Yes. Uh, one of the many possibilities that could unfold as the, in this insane election season. Mm. It's, you just never know. Um, you know, the, the point about, uh, you know, tr- what the conservative media ecosystem could do, they it's just we've never seen anything like this before. And as someone who has been in Republican politics for over 20 years and watching the me- the media that I used to be a part of, um, not realizing that it was uh, such a cabal the way it is now, I, I often question and I say this a lot uh, throughout my podcast, like what role did I play in this? How mm. complicit was I in that? I, I've done a lot of self-reflection about that. And, and I, which is probably why I'm so hell bent on making sure that they're all held accountable for the hypocrisy and dishonesty now I'm, that I'm more particularly passionate about that because it's, I, I know what the other side is and I know what they're doing and how dishonest it is. And I just, I just can't, I can't do it. But um, I, I wanted to ask you a question that I know a lot of people are wondering, and I try to reassure them about Donald Trump's ability to influence elections. This is a primarily state function, but people are wondering, can he try to change election day? You know, what if, can he do something to thwart the election in November? Please reassure people and explain why Donald Trump does not have the power to change the election. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not Rick Hassan. I'm not an election lawyer, but from everything I know, the election day is set. And, and Trump himself has said the election day is set. The election is, of course, it doesn't really matter. He says <laughs> right. That doesn't set. matter. <laughs> the election is set. It will happen. Now, you know, uh, if if the virus is resurfacing, could he try to mess with that? Uh, because, you know, by encouraging uh, Republican governors to do lockdowns in Democratic cities. I mean, there's a lot of things that could happen. Uh, but but it wouldn't you know, matter if we had mail in balloting. It wouldn't matter if you had mail in balloting, <laughs> you know. I, just just to give you a sense of kind of how they you know how 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 uh, granular they might get on this the night before the New Hampshire primary when he spoke you know there they, they were there were people in the in Republican circles who said that he came to Manchester on the night before just to mess up the traffic for the Democrats trying yes. to get around to, to do their last I rally. heard that and yep. I was caught in some of those traffic jams myself um, so I, I don't put anything you know past him but you know Again, Florida is a Republican governor. Arizona is a Republican governor. But the other four states that are are most likely to decide the election, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, are Democratic governors. And I think that will limit his ability to um, kind of, you know, put any sand in the gears of how they administer their elections. Right. That's a good thing. Speaking of Michigan and Michigan's governor, I uh, think that Gretchen Whitmer is a potential VP candidate for 
Joe Biden. Many people think it's, you know, Kamala Harris or he needs to have pick a minority female. But I still think that Gretchen is on the short list and I think she'd be great. But can you believe just quickly uh, before we talk a little bit more about uh, your second piece for the last couple minutes that we have where you talk about the partisan divide that this coronavirus is creating? Um, did you see the, the photographs of the of the rally? Um, mm-hmm. the, the the state yeah. capitol steps in yeah. Michigan of these wackadoos with these semi-automatic rifles and Trump signs protesting her, you know, demanding she be removed from office. Confederate like, flags. What Confederate flags in Michigan, the, the, for God's sakes. What the, the hell cause, is this? The cause of the Confederacy has a really long tradition in Michigan, right? I mean, it was a lot of like... Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, look, I mean, Jefferson he, Davis envisioned Michigan as, you know, right, one of his right. places. It was, it, was, it was a cornerstone of uh, yeah. of their, of their uh, Inchon maneuver <laughs> that they were planning uh, to come in behind enemy lines through Canada. Um, uh, look, um, I uh, it, it's actually it's actually a good place to segue into the into the, the, the broader conversation, because, you know, a, a, a as the Republican coal, I, I've been covering, you know, you mentioned I've been doing this a while. First presidential campaign I covered was 1984. And as the Republican coalition has evolved over my lifetime. Uh, you know, as Tom Davis, the former head of the NRCC, likes to say, we've moved from the country club to the country. It's become, you know, a party that is more dependent on older, blue-collar, rural, and evangelical white voters. It's still, uh, for example, two-thirds of Republicans are white Christians at a time when they're down to 40% of the whole country. It's 90% white overall. Uh, it, 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 the share of gun owners in the Republican coalition is much higher than it is in the, in the, in the, um, in the country overall. And in all of these different ways, um, you know, so much of the messaging to the Republican coalition uh, and that finds a lot of resonance is more about cultural resentments uh, and the feeling of being culturally besieged than it is about economic interest. And, you know, you obviously know this yep. as well. And and part of that, part of the, uh, you know, uh, the, the modern conservative populism has always portrayed themselves as the champion of kind of the virtuous middle, what Sarah Palin called the real America all the way back in 2008, the virtuous middle. And they portray the virtuous middle as under siege from minorities from below immigrants and, you know, black people who are either coming to take your jobs or threatening you with crime and threatened from above by elites that are disdainful of you, that look down on you, that sneer at your guns and religion and consider you a deplorable. And what we're learning is that medical experts are not immune to that general kind of Republican messaging over the last really 40 years, uh, but certainly very intently under Trump, that, you know, all of these different kind of elites and deep states are really about keeping you down. Expertise, they don't have expertise. They have a desire to control your life. And, you know, they don't want to save your life. They want to run your life, as I said yesterday. Um, And, you know, that the people who show up for that, that protest, you know, with their with their guns and don't tread on me and Confederate flags are the most extreme version of that. But there is a lot of receptivity in the Republican coalition, as you've seen in the polling, to the idea that experts are just blowing this whole thing out of proportion. Um, and, you know, that is a big part of Trump's message. You are under siege from below and above, and I alone am here to defend you against the media and Hollywood and the deep state from one side and from minorities and immigrants on the other. Well, as my good friend well, my- Tom Nichols has said in his book, The Death of Experts, which he wrote a couple years ago before all of this, uh, it turned out to be very prescient. He mentions that a pandemic or something like that 
may actually have a resurgence wow. in re, in um, a, a reliance on experts again, right? It was kind of en vogue, like you said, especially in Republican circles to go after these elitists and these experts. What do they know? Um, and we're seeing that play out right now with the dynamic between Dr. Fauci and and the, the experts at the CDC and elsewhere and Donald Trump saying that it's his brain and his instinct that yep. has, you know, and he doesn't take responsibility and all this asinine approach to and just utter failure of his of his response to the coronavirus pandemic. And in your piece that you just released, um, you say an, an unprecedented divide between red and blue America that mm. the pandemic could exacerbate, exacerbate a major Trump elect, re-election vulnerability, his weakness with urban and suburban voters. Those people are becoming more and more frustrated with Donald Trump and turned off with Donald Trump's um, intransigence and just really unintelligent approach to things that you think that this could be a determinant factor going into 2000, uh, going into 2020. Right. So, you know, we could say that um, over the long term, you know, what's happened in the Trump era is that all of the divides that we were already experiencing have been intensified and accelerated, whether it's the demographic divides, but also the geographic divides. And, you know, basically the story uh, of the last of this century is Democrats um, consolidating a stronger position in the metro areas, the big metros, really everywhere. I mean, you know, you know, we started at the beginning of this uh, century with northern Virginia and Denver and its suburbs following the movement that we saw in the 90s in Illinois and California and New Jersey with uh, and Pennsylvania, uh, Philadelphia, with the big suburban counties moving toward Democrats. But, you know, in the, by the last election, by 2016 and 2018, we were seeing significant movement toward the Democrats in Richmond and Houston and Dallas and uh, Atlanta in the suburban areas there, Charleston, Oklahoma City, Salt Lake City. Um, and this is a reality of, of the kind of Trump presidency. I mean, he focuses his message so much on the both the the fear, the hopes, but even more so the fears, I think, of non-metro America. And basically, you know, the, the, the trade that he is imposing on the Republican Party is diminished performance in the places that are growing in return for better performance in the places that are shrinking. I mean, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's basically my one sentence about kind of the the way Trump is reconfiguring the Republican coalition is true, both demographically and geographically. Geographically, he lost 87 of the 100 largest counties in America by a combined 15 million votes. Oh, now, he still won by, you know, producing these terrific margins in rural uh, uh, and small town and exurban America. But as a long run business proposition, squeezing bigger advantages out of shrinking places is a problem. And what I what I pointed out in my piece today was that um, first of all, 2018 showed that this gap could be even bigger on its own in 2020 than it was in 2016. But if you add the coronavirus to it, um, what you see, uh, Jed Kolko, the, the economist, ran these numbers for me using the New York Times database in, in, every, in virtually every state. Even when you ingest for population, the per capita incidence of coronavirus is significantly higher in the big population centers than it is in the smaller places. It's a disease that thrives on density. And what that means, uh, first of all, in the short run, is it helps explain why there is so much more agitation in kind of the Republican heartland of small town and you know mid-sized America to reopen the economy because they're not feeling the public health effects as much. But I think if you're Donald Trump and you're looking not only at Wayne County, which is Detroit, but Oakland County and Macomb County outside of it, which are getting hammered mm-hmm. uh, by this. Or if you're anywhere in the New York, um, you know, metro uh, media market or um, 
um, uh, you know, many Chicago, any of these other places, um, they are feeling this. They are seeing the images on the on their TV of hospitals being overrun. Um, uh, and I think that it is entirely possible, and especially if you look at the Wisconsin results uh, uh, on the state Supreme Court, that, that Trump could have an even bigger deficit in the 100 largest counties uh, than he did in 2016, maybe more like 17 million votes this time. And the question is, can he overcome that by both margin and turnout in smaller places where, you know, yes, there are more people to turn out. He could pick up the margin. Um, but that is the, you know, that is kind of the thin reed or the thin branch on which he's going to have to tiptoe his way to re-election if he gets there, because you look at the largest counties that he won in 2016, Maricopa in Phoenix was the single largest county in America that he won. Cinema won it That's in right. 2018. And, and there was a pullout this week with Trump down 13 points in Maricopa. Which so is, which is um, what's happening in suburbia. That is unbelievable because in 2016, he won that county by plus 16, I think. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it was quite that high, but it was the it was the single largest county in America that he won. It was plus 16. The, <laughs> I looked it, it up. Well. I just found my, yeah. I looked at my notes. Plus 16 Karen, in 2016. Yeah. I mean, all four I mean, the biggest counties he won were Maricopa, Tarrant, which is Fort Worth, which right. Beto then won in 2018, Suffolk County on Long Island, which, again, they're they're getting that New York media market. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know about that. And then Pinellas, which 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 uh, Florida. Uh, you know, after that, it's Colin Duval, Kern and Macomb. I don't think he's winning Macomb again, given what's happened in Michigan. He'll probably win Colin and Denton, which, as you know, are big suburbs outside of Dallas. But the margins in those places for the for Cruz was radically cut by by Beto O'Rourke in 18. And, you know, basically, if you say again, it's not only geographically, it's demographically. Trump is giving Republicans enormous margins among evangelical white Christians, non-college whites, older whites. Uh, But he's facing probably the worst performance a Republican has ever had among college whites. And women. and especially college white women, uh, he's he's looking at, you know, a, a huge deficits among uh, minority voters, although some opportunity among, I think, African-American and Hispanic men. And then young people are the big question because Trump's numbers with young people have been miserable throughout his presidency. But there have been a few polls, including one by Pew Today, that shows Biden kind of facing the Hillary problem yes. with, a, with a decent share of younger people saying, ah. Eh, I don't know about either of these guys. I, I wonder, though, if that has long lasting effect yeah. as the yeah. as the election goes on. I mean, right now, the the Bernie people and, and college kids are just pissed off about everything. Bernie's Bernie dropped out. Their college right. experience is ruined right now. They're just all pissed off. They're at home with their parents. Will that change come November when they really understand the impact of they stay home um, as the election gets closer? I, I think that the urgency this time around versus in 2016. 16 may be greater, I'm hoping anyway, and that that demographic will get off their asses and do the right thing. (laughs) Well, Ron, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I appreciate your time. Just to to wrap it up, the six states that are probably the most important Mm -hmm. states come the Electoral College in November already have a mail-in ballot uh, apparatus in place so we can feel pretty confident that it should be smooth sailing in those states. Uh, Is that something that people can can feel confident about in Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania? And for those other states where there may be some more 
fights. Is there something that people can do? You know, because a lot of times voters say, well, what can we do? You know, we feel like it's out of our hands. Are they able to go to meetings? Do you think that they, you know, write to their governors? What what can people do to make sure that their states do the right thing by way of election security this year? Good good question. Uh, There will be fights about details in those big six. But as we said, the legal structure is in place for a big increase in in the use of mail balloting. I think the most important thing people can do is find ways to um, get Republican voices to support the really should be nonpartisan idea that people shouldn't have to risk their lives to vote in November. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, the fact that a, a state like Arizona and Florida, uh, which have been, you know, Republican dominated uh, for decades now, um, have had extensive use of direct mail, uh, I'm sorry, of, of mail balloting uh, without questions of fraud or somehow tilting it to the Democrats. Um, I mean, this should be a reality that people should understand. I mean, you, you can make this work. And by the way, um, uh, in terms of that, that partisan issue, uh, there are some, some issues, some, some thoughts that uh, Wisconsin, by making this so hard and so confusing, may have discouraged some older white voters who vote Republican from participating. So I think the most important people can do thing people can do is to encourage the non-partisan uh, and Republican voices in their lives to basically say, yeah, I don't think people should go have to stand online in November if we're still worrying about social distancing at that point. Absolutely. And the Washington Post just published a study by Stanford University that said that there is no partisan advantage when it comes to mail-in balloting, which is very interesting. You guys can check that out at the Washington Post. Ron Brownstein, check him out at The Atlantic. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, always insightful. And uh, hope to hope to get to see you soon in person yeah. when we're able to get back to some semblance of normalcy. Yes, right. Uh, I think everybody's looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, we're just going to have to be careful on that road. Thank you for having me. Good to be with you. Thank you. Stay safe and healthy, my friend. All right. Bye-bye. Again, another big thank you to Ron Brownstein being so generous with his time. Uh, he's so smart. So it's always, I always learn something when it comes to things that Ron Brownstein's writing or talking about. So be sure to follow him. He's um, an interesting guy. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Uh, but before I go, I just want to say a couple more words of encouragement. Um and to just remind people to pray for our healthcare workers who are putting themselves on the line and our store clerks and delivery folks and all of those people who are putting themselves at risk to try to keep as much normalcy as we can during this time. And I wanted to just mention also a couple acts of kindness from Boston and New York. Since I spent some time there, I have an affinity now for the city. I still hate the sports teams. I will never be a fan of anything Boston sports wise. It's against my religion coming from New Jersey and my fandom with New York teams. So that won't happen. But I absolutely fell in love with the city of Cambridge and Boston in the short time that that I was there. And so I've been paying more attention to kind of Boston media and stuff. And because Boston's also a hotspot. And um, Boston healthcare workers sent meals to New York healthcare workers as an act of kindness and to show solidarity with them, which was, I thought, really, really nice, given everyone knows the rivalry between Boston and New York. So healthcare workers helping each other. And um, I thought that was really nice of them. And their governor said something pretty profound. And Charlie Baker, Massachusetts governor, 
he's a Republican, not known for being um, too much, having too much personality. He's kind of a technocrat, but he got emotional recently because as the death toll is rising in his state, um, his he talked about how his best friend's mother died recently of of COVID and how close his best friend and his mom were. And that it really just made him start to rethink relationships. And he told people, listen, you need to make sure you never leave anything unsaid with your loved ones. Because one of the awful downsides of many of this virus is that people are in, they're in isolation and they often die alone or with a healthcare worker, not with their families. You can't visit because of how contagious this is. And that's really sad. You can't have traditional funerals. Like this is just, it's, it's really awful. So it just really frustrates me when the president downplays this, which he did for weeks, as I mentioned earlier, and how his acolytes on Fox News and other places, these idiots continue to downplay it. You know, now the new thing is, oh, it's only like the flu again. We're back to that because not as many people are dying as they initially thought. Oh, it's not going to be a million people or a hundred thousand. It might only be 60,000. What? And these people are unreal. Sick. It's sick. It's it's. Ugh. But anyway, but Charlie Baker and, and Governor Cuomo, you know, I've been watching his his daily briefings, too, which are which are entertaining and informative. And and, you know, they you see these guys, they, they're getting emotional because that's how real this is. People's lives are on the line. So I thought Charlie Baker, Governor Baker's words, never leave anything unsaid were our good ones to remember. So I'll leave you guys on that note. And uh, like I said, stay tuned for the YouTube channel to come soon. I'll be giving more information about that. And glad to have you back. If you're a first time listener, I hope you come back and download the podcast again. Thank you to all my regular listeners. We, um, I will continue to do this more regularly, of course, especially during the time that we're in and hope that we all don't go buggy. Uh, in quarantine. Now stay home, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.